Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. And um, it's found in your bulletin on page 6, if you would like to follow along. Listen to the word of God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, How is it that you are turning back to those weak and worthless elemental principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, I was... It was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you, had done, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christy. We're continuing our study of the book of Galatians, moving slowly through this wonderful letter written many, many years ago in the first century. And let's see what God has in store for us in this passage. Let's pray together. God, we're praying for your power because we're weak, weak to believe, weak to understand, weak to see, weak to change. We need you. And so we're praying for the power of your spirit to make these words come alive and to make our lives come alive. Please change us and please change us by the power of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to talk about something that the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry. Uh, The idols of our lives. Now, I know that when you hear the words idols or idolatry, it's not language that we use often. It's maybe not the way that you normally think of your life or of your spiritual lives, or any part of life. And so I know you might already be saying to yourselves, idols, like like literal idols, is that what we're talking about? I haven't bowed to any marble statues lately, uh, so this must not apply to me. Or maybe the person next to you is saying to herself, idolatry, isn't that what primitive people do? Uh, isn't that what they're into? Well, I'm, I'm not that gullible. Uh, I'm not even all that religious. I guess this doesn't apply to me. 
Or maybe the friend who brought you here is thinking, well, I'm a professing Christian. Uh, I worship Jesus, so this idea of idolatry certainly doesn't apply to me. But hold on. Hold on one second. What if there's just a different way of understanding these words and these concepts of idolatry and the worship of idols? Which, in fact, is what we find in today's passage as Paul writes to the Galatian church. Paul is writing to a bunch of Christians, remember, in the region of Galatia, which was actually located in the southern part of modern-day Turkey. He starts off, you might have noticed in verse 8, reminding them, That they now know God through Jesus Christ, but it wasn't always that way. They used to be steeped in idolatry. Formerly, Paul says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. They they worshipped pagan gods who were not truly the true God. They were false gods, fake gods, counterfeit gods. And here now Paul says, time has passed and now you are starting to turn back, verse 9, turn back to those weak and worthless elemental principles, which also is another way of talking about the worship of idols. Hold on a second. The Greek word that here is translated elemental principles basically means the elements If you're studying chemistry right now, or if you have in the past, maybe you might remember the periodic table of what? Elements, the basic building blocks of all things. Maybe you remember the word stoichiometry. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. I stunk at chemistry. You know, I'm barely hanging on to this stuff. But the word actually is stoichia, stoichiometry, the elements And it basically refers to this idea in the Greek ancient religious system, where the elements referred to all the basic stuff that everything visible was believed to be made of. Earth, air, fire, water. And it was believed that behind each of these elements were gods that controlled our lives. And so if you were a farmer... You'd pray to the earth stoichia, and you would make sacrifices to the water stoichia for rain, for good crops, for prosperity, and so forth. In other words, Paul is referring to the worship of gods all over again. And he's saying that the Galatian Christians are slipping back into idolatry even though they now know the true God and profess to be followers of Jesus. But see, this time, it's not slipping into the worship of pagan gods. It's actually by observing Christian rituals and Jewish festivals and ceremonies 
What he describes in verse 10 as these special days and months and seasons and years. And from the rest of the letter, we know the rite of circumcision and other religious rules and things that the Galatian Christians were being taught by false teachers that they needed to do in order to make themselves acceptable to God. To make themselves approved of God and loved by God. Paul is saying your your commitment to these things, your near religious commitment to doing these things to make yourself right with God is actually in fact no different from the pagan idol worship that you used to be engrossed in in your former way of life. Which tells us, going back to us, that first of all, you don't have to bow to literal statues to be worshiping idols. The Galatian Christians weren't actually bowing to literal statues, and Paul still said they are falling into idolatry. Secondly, this is the case because idolatry is something Paul is telling us that happens deep in our hearts, deep in the human soul. And therefore, thirdly, whether you're a professing Christian, as the Galatians in this letter were, or if you see yourself as a totally non-religious person, Paul is telling us we all, every one of us, tend to have idols in our Hearts. Okay, what does that mean? Can we look at a few things and unpack this a little bit? How might we define idolatry? What is it anyway? One Christian author, Dr. Tim Keller, pastor up in New York, writing lots of books these days, wrote a helpful one, a book called Counterfeit Gods. I would recommend it to all of you. Gives a very helpful definition in his book on this concept of idolatry. I'm going to read it fairly extensively. Please follow along. What is an idol, he says? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central, so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can actually spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face, or social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. 
See, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life will have meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. In other words, idolatry is worshiping something to the point of letting that thing define you and control you. Idolatry starts with just wanting or needing something, anything too much, making it your everything. Idolatry is treating something like the God of your life, looking to someone or something else to give you what God alone can give. Things like significance or value or glory or righteousness, protection, hope, freedom, happiness, intimacy, a sense of fulfillment, meaning, security, wholeness, strength, comfort when you're down. The gods of our hearts. What is it for you? And maybe it's not clear right away. And so maybe some questions might help you diagnose what's going on deep within. Think about some questions like this. And maybe even jot down some answers that come to mind. What's your greatest nightmare? What do you most worry about? What's the scariest thing you can imagine happening to you? What's been making you really angry lately? What's really been ticking you off? Is it something maybe that you've been telling yourself, I have to have, and you're just so angry because someone or something is blocking you from getting it? You're idle. What do you turn to to comfort yourself when things go bad or get rough? If you pray, what prayer, if God didn't answer it or give it to you, would make you want to turn away from God or give up on God? What's that prayer? What if you failed at it or lost it would make you start feeling like a total loser? Or make you want to give up on life like you don't want to live anymore? What, dear friends, would make you happy? I mean, really crazy happy. Where does your mind and your heart go when you don't have to go anywhere or do anything? What fills your daydreams most easily? Sometimes the answer to some of these questions can start to get at what really is practically and functionally serving as our true God, our true source of meaning and significance, the thing that gives us value, the thing that tells us we're okay, the thing that makes me get up in the morning, the thing that consoles me and comforts me in a time of grief. What is it for you? You might notice in your heart something that you might call relationship idolatry. This person must be in my life for me to be somebody. Or maybe it's what you might call approval idolatry. I don't feel significant unless other people say kind and affirming things about me. I need their verbal affirmation to feel okay. Or maybe for you it's the idolatry of money or financial security. Maybe it's why you're devoting yourself so hard to that project Or why it's hurting you so bad 
that you don't have as much as you wish you did have. Maybe for you in your heart, it's the idolatry of control that is the biggest thing. You know, where the goal is just to eliminate all chaos, all uncertainty of life and life. And I just get mad when anyone starts introducing more chaos. Stop doing that. You're messing up my God, my life. Or maybe it's a work idolatry or career and success idolatry. Where you only feel valuable if you're excelling in your work and you're starting to use your job as a way of forming a new identity, a new you. There's something that you might call a making a difference idolatry. (laughs) Making a difference idolatry where I only feel valuable if I'm helping people or if people need me, whether at home or in the world. There's the idolatry of happiness. There's the idolatry of being number one. I I need to win at everything. Whether if it's at work or at home or in conversations. That's why I'm arguing all the time. Or maybe it's just in a simple game of sports or a video game or a board game. And I just get more intense than I probably should because I must win. A close cousin, of course, is the uh, the idol of being right all the time. I must win in every way. There's the idolatry of religious activity, even morality. That I look at the things that I do in church or before God or the right things that I'm doing, all the ways that I'm doing good and being a good person. I'm looking to that to be my boast before God, my righteousness before God. For others, it's physical beauty and body image. It's what drives some people to kill themselves at the gym. For others, it's a comfort idolatry. Don't introduce anything that makes life more chaotic and uncomfortable. Freedom in independence idols. I do whatever I want. I eat whatever I want. I buy whatever I want. Nobody tells me what to do. Productivity and efficiency idols, family and children idols, ideology idols, political parties or belief systems, things that you care about, causes. What is it for you? And are you coming to terms with this dynamic in your heart enough that you're able to start to say together with me, my name is Duke and I am a recovering idol worshiper. I am a recovering idolater. I mean, I I mean that. You know, I've been on this journey trying to understand some of these things in my own life, and even this past week had a wonderful time thinking about the idols of my heart, right? Trying to do my pre-homework and understanding how this applies to me before talking to you about it. Came to appreciate again how deep this stuff runs in my life. How I worship the God of appreciation. Appreciation idolatry. Uh, You know, where not only do I need people to notice things that I do, but I really need them to verbally express it to me and show their gratitude. You know, my wife, Paula, she says thank you to me for things that I do, and I need her to say it again (laughs) and again. And then I whine about it later on. I worship the God of ministry success. Oh, the ways that even this church 
As I, together with you, try to build this ministry and see things be effective for the glory of God, the good of our neighbors, the good of all of you, the way that even this thing can become a way that I try to invest a sense of significance and identity and value and idol in my heart. I worship the God of competency, just loving it when people think of me as being gifted or able or fearful that people might find out when I'm not. Or see my weaknesses. Worship the God of control. Worship the God of being understood. You know this one? You know where you just, you just die with self-pity when you feel misunderstood. And maybe that's what is getting in the way of your friendships, relationships. Because you always feel like people don't get you. Because you worship this idea that somebody out there must know everything about me before I'll actually open up my life to you. The idolatry of being understood. What is it, dear friends, for you? Definition of idolatry. I want to talk to you about the hiddenness of idolatry. The hiddenness of idolatry. You see, as we start to get honest with ourselves, I hope you're starting to notice how underneath the surface this stuff is. Where until you have someone like your preacher yelling at you and telling you that you're an idolater, right? Let's just join the club together and do this, right? That you don't always think about this stuff. In fact, one of the reasons why it's hard to notice in our lives is because idolatry almost always starts with good things. Genuine blessings from God. You know, because your work is a good thing. And your children are a good thing. And even wanting to feel some sense of significance in contributing to the needs of other people is a good thing. It's the way God has wired us. And this is exactly why idolatry is so deceptive and so dangerous. See, precisely because it's good is why I start to believe that it really might be able to satisfy my deepest desires and really might be able to give me glory in life. Because it's good. And precisely because it's from God, there are countless ways in which I can tell myself that God really wants me to devote myself to this thing. In fact, he tells me to. And we can rationalize the idols of our hearts by saying, well, doesn't God want me to raise a healthy child? And excusing yourself, perhaps, from the deep, unhealthy attachments underneath the surface. Or doesn't God want me to provide for my family? Not allowing yourself to see how much your work life has caused you to sacrifice every other part of life in service to that idol. Our heart takes these good things and starts to make them ultimate things. God's to us. But there's a second reason why the idols of our hearts are also hidden to us, and it's because they run so deep underneath the surface. Let me show you an example here right in this passage. 
In the beginning, Paul talks about idolatry in the second half of the passage. He's making a plea with the Galatian Christians, telling them to please listen to me. I'm doing this for your good. I'm trying to tell you the truth. I'm trying to restore you to spiritual health. But what he's describing here is the way the Galatians have actually turned on him. Early on, years before, they had a wonderful relationship, and now they all but hate him. Verse 12, second half, he says, you did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. We don't know exactly what that illness was. Some kind of hardship. Maybe it was a a poor eyesight or infection or some kind of physical disability. Verse 14, that even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me. As if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Verse 15, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. This is how much you loved me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so you might take this passage and you say, okay, what's the problem with the Galatian Christians? And you might say, well, their problem is kindness. They just need to be kinder. They need to be nicer. They need to serve Paul more. They need to re-receive him. What Paul is telling us, though, is that there's something deeper, even deeper underneath the antagonism, something deeper than just the unkindness. It's called idolatry. It's the sin underneath the sin. In other words, you might say, well, look, I know lying isn't good. I probably shouldn't do it, but I do it all the time and I just lied again, so I just need to stop lying. Not realizing that underneath our tendency to lie, underneath that sin is a deeper sin, an idol. In other words, ask yourself, why do you lie? I tell you what I do when I do. It's because I want people to like me, usually. It's because I want them to think that I'm smart or I want them to think that I'm doing well in my work. It's when I bend the truth about maybe how much I've been devoting myself to ministry or how many books I've been reading. In other words, underneath my deception is the idolatry of work the idolatry of competence, the idolatry of people's approval, right? So if all I'm doing is spending time on the surface and saying, look, I just, I just need to stop lying, all I'm doing is seeing the very tip of the iceberg and not dealing with the sin underneath the sin. Maybe you struggle with anger. And you're trying to tell yourself, I just need to stop being so angry. Whether if it's the temper that I have, or maybe it's the quiet grumbling that I don't normally express. But you can't just tell yourself, I'm going to stop being angry because there's a big fat iceberg base underneath the surface in your heart. And it's called, maybe, the idolatry of control. Because the reason why you explode in the face of your roommates or your spouse or your co-workers is because people are always messing up your system. (laughs) They're always intruding in on your schedule. They're violating your God of control, you see. It's not just the anger, it's the control underneath the surface that needs to be dealt with. 
Or maybe you just struggle to serve the poor. It's not something that you care to do where you'd rather just pass on with your life. Or maybe you struggle to befriend the rich and you'd rather just sort of pass on with your life in scorn and judgment. The question isn't just simply be more compassionate or be a better neighbor. It's what's driving it underneath. Is it your idolatry of your possessions and your money? Is it your idolatry of status? This idea that you are a good, noble sufferer in life, and therefore no one is as good as you unless they have gone through as much as you have? Or is it that you have worked so hard, other people need to work as hard as you have in order to deserve what you've earned in life? The idolatry of your good, hard work. Oh, dear friends, there's a hiddenness to our idolatry, the sin beneath our sins, the self-deception and the confusion that clouds over our recognition of all this junk in our hearts. That's bad news. Let me add to the bad news. A third thing that you might call the bondage of idolatry. The bondage of idolatry. The idols of our hearts treat us like slaves. I mean, you might be saying to yourself, okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, you asked me some fun questions. I see there's some funky stuff going on in my life. But who cares? What's the big deal? Okay, so I've got some clutter in my heart. What's the big deal? Paul is telling us why. Did you hear his language? Verse 9. Do you wish to be enslaved by these idols all over again? Verse 8. You were slaves. The idols of our lives control us. The idols of our hearts serve as slave masters that make us have to serve that thing even to the point of insanity. makes you do crazy things. I mean, you are sacrificing people that you normally care about for the sake of serving this idol in your heart. You're giving up on dreams that you normally care about in service to these idols. You're starting to let your life be broken apart by these enslaving actions and desires. It's really interesting in the Old Testament, if you look at the language of the prophets, they describe idolatry kind of like adultery. A spouse who's not only in an adulterous relationship outside of their marriage, but who's actually a sex addict with multiple partners and can't seem to stop. How graphically wonderful is that to give us a sense of how this addictive nature of idolatry works in our hearts. Right? Because if my whole life and self-image is based upon this thing, then I can't live without that. And I'll do whatever it takes to feed that sucker until I die. That is how it works. We get so hooked because all these idols are always promising blessings and curses, to use Old Testament language. Idols promise blessing if you serve it well. Serve me and I will make you happy. Serve me and I will make you secure. If you have enough money, you'll be okay. If you get people to like you, you'll feel more important. If you get that social status or that size bank account, or if you get that one person to fall in love with you, then you'll be somebody. Empty promises. 
empty promises that the idol cannot deliver to you, and in the meanwhile, promising curse after curse after curse. If you don't control everything, you're going to be nothing. If you don't win out in this argument, you're a loser. If you don't achieve that achievement, you're not going to be the glorious person that you've always longed to be. Serve me. Trust me. Sacrifice to me. The wooing, seductive voice of the idols of our hearts that keep us in bondage. And just like any other kind of slavery, it makes us so much less human. It starts to paralyze you and cripple you and make you less of a person made in the image of God. You hear this in the way that Paul says in verse 15, dear friends, what has happened to all your joy? Do you feel that way? Enslaved by fears and concerns, living a joyless life, especially if you are a professing follower of Jesus, and now you don't even barely recognize who you are before God because your heart is so full of idols. Do you feel like a slave? Do you want freedom? Which is what Paul is talking about here. And there is good news because there is freedom. Freedom from idolatry that comes from turning our gaze to the true God of gods. Away from the gods who aren't gods, the false gods, the fake gods, the counterfeit gods, and turning to the true God who's the only God that does promise blessings but actually does deliver them, does give you glory. A God who actually, through Jesus, can and will accept you perfectly and love you and fill your heart with the deepest kind of intimacy that you've always been longing for. With a sense of stature, a sense of belonging that you've been chasing after through all the different avenues of life that you've been roaming through. He can and He will give it to you. The God who promises to you to be everything for you. The God who also curses, but curses himself when you fail him. All the other idols, all the other gods will kill you and crush you and dehumanize you if you don't serve them well. This is the only God that actually curses himself when you screw up who forgives you because He Himself bore the curse of all your failures and sins. This is what Jesus did on the cross for all of us, for those who would embrace Him. A God who gives you life. Do you want to know this God? The God who wants to restore your joy. So lastly, in closing, what does this freedom from idolatry look like? Freedom from our idols. First of all, it means removing the idols of our heart, recognizing them for who they are and what they are and the power they have, working through those questions that we've been talking about and starting to recognize in the language of Paul here how weak and worthless they are. That worshiping my ministry success 
will not give me the joy, satisfaction, and glory that I think it will. To see the ways in which we give ourselves to relationships in unhealthy, idolatrous ways, and to see the way that that is destroying us with sorrow, with trembling, seeing how this, if you're a professing Christian, is not just something to be analyzed, it's something to weep over. Because you're spitting on the face of Jesus. You're saying, I know this is my Savior, supposedly on paper, but no thank you. Let me turn to this other thing to save me, to give me life, to give me a sense of self-worth. Let it break your heart. Let yourself see the deadly slave master that it is. Let it become repulsive to you. But then also fill your heart with a new vision of the God that Jesus offers to be for you. And recognize that for everything that you've been turning to those idols for, Jesus gives that very same specific thing to you in perfection. Hallelujah. Value and glory and comfort and significance and intimacy and meaning and righteousness and familyhood. All these things given to you in perfection where you can start to come to Him and say, how could I not see the way in which you give me in this unique gospel way, what that idol promises to give, but never will be able to give to me. And to marinate our hearts in this until it starts to reignite your heart and your life with joy. Final thought is this. You have to do it in community. Right? Because the idols are far too hidden, far too deep, far too easy to lie to yourself about and deceive yourself. You need other people around you. We all need other people around you to look at our lives that know you well enough to say to you, here it is. Here's the truth. For people to be as the Apostle Paul was to the Galatian Christians. We need someone who loves us enough to tell us the truth. Someone that will anguish for our growth, as Paul says in the last two verses here, my dear children for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth. What a, what a rich, rich metaphor. Anguishing for your growth in Christ. Someone that's willing to tell us the truth, who's not afraid to confront, who's willing to do it humbly and, of course, lovingly. Someone willing to persevere with us. Someone willing to suffer when we don't get it or when we get angry because we brought it up to them, as the Galatian Christians did. Treating you like an enemy. Not responding well the first time. Look, sign up for community. This is what we're signing up for. It's messy. It's painful. But gospel confrontation in our idolatries, humbly, perseveringly, lovingly, means hanging in there with each other and restoring our hearts, our lives to our true Savior, Jesus. Don't you want that? I do. 
Can we be a community like that? Let's pray that God would make it so. Father, we pray that you would open our lives to you, open areas of our life to you. Help us to see things that we haven't been seen. Help us to worship you rightly. Help us to fall in love with you again. Or maybe for some of us, for the first time. But please help us to see the idols of our heart. And heal us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.